Hey, yo, River, and welcome back to another episode of What is Politics? Recently, I did a segment where I talked a bit about the relationship between cancel culture and at-will employment, and how what makes cancel culture something that actually matters, at least in the United States, is that in 49 of those states, employers are allowed to fire anyone for almost any reason, including for no reason at all. Having the wrong political opinion, having the wrong kind of sex at home, being too attractive, not being attractive enough, all these things get a pass in the American legal system. On top of this, in an economy where the ultimate purpose of an enterprise is to benefit the employer and nobody else, there's every reason for an employer to fire an employee who's being unfairly targeted by false rumors or by a defamation campaign, even when the employer knows that the employee didn't do anything wrong, even when the employer agrees with the employee even when the employee is the employer's daughter. And these are all real examples. And always keep in mind that the word employee literally just means human tool. And actually, a couple of weeks after my video came out, Jacobin put out an article called At Will Employment is the Real Cancel Culture. So you're welcome, Jacobin. Anyhow, in that segment, I define cancel culture as the habit of appealing to authorities, usually employers, to get people fired for saying things that some people don't like. Now, several people pointed out to me that this definition is too narrow. Getting people fired or banned is an important aspect of cancel culture, but there's a whole other aspect that doesn't involve employers or authorities at all, where the punishment is limited to extreme social ostracism and defamation, which happens more in peer groups and in social media. Now, there have been some debates among people who think that they're on the political left about whether cancel culture is real or if it's just a right-wing smear used to discredit ideas like anti-racism and anti-sexism, or if it's a minor phenomenon being exaggerated for political purposes. But now that the social justice language associated with cancel culture is becoming a standard feature of corporate HR culture, with prominent companies like Disney and Google using social justice reasons as excuses to fire people, that means that it's going to start affecting tens of millions of workers, which to me means that it is something worth talking about. Now, the whole debate about whether cancel culture is real or if it's just a smear is a matter of definition. It's both real and an invented boogeyman smear. And in figuring out how to properly define cancel culture and the related concept of political correctness, we can separate what's real from what isn't and get a whole lot of political insights in the process that apply way beyond the idea of cancel culture. So in this series of spitball segments, what I want to do is throw around some ideas about how cancel culture should be defined, about whose interest it serves, and how it fits into a historical context of similar phenomena, so that we can derive some political principles that you can use to analyze all sorts of political and historical situations, past, present, and future. You're going to hear me criticize academia a lot in these segments, but one thing that I learned in academia which is really great is that when presenting a paper or a thesis, you want to give away your punchline first. That way the reader or the listener doesn't get lost if they drift off for a moment, which is also great advice for podcasters. Really bad advice for comedians. So, in what follows, I'm going to be arguing that cancel culture and political correctness are right-wing tools in a left-wing disguise, meaning that they're tools for reinforcing hierarchy and domination, but using the language and pretense of seeking equality. Remember from episodes 3, 4, and 5 that left and right refer to equality and hierarchy. And go check out those episodes if you want to understand what that means, because it might get confusing if that isn't already clear in your head. I'm going to try to put this in a historical context. 
how since the dawn of the era of representative democracy, people in power have been using egalitarian left-wing language to bolster hierarchical regimes. And you can see that in the justifications for colonialism in the 19th century. And you can see it in the 20th century with the rise of the supposedly communist regimes. And you even have a sort of version of it way back in the Roman Republic. And I call this whole phenomenon the fake left. And I'm going to argue that cancel culture and political correctness are toxic, bizarro, mirror universe versions of good ideas like racial equality and gender equality, and that these toxic phenomena are an example of what happens when you have ideas that are a threat to power, which then get filtered through the institutions of power, in this case, elite academia, where ideas that threaten power then get mutated into ideas that serve the needs and aspirations of people in power. And I call this phenomenon class selection, or the class filter. And I'm going to argue that these toxic ideas and practices are not just misguided tools for fighting racism and sexism, which they are in part, but they're also management tools, tools which are useful to dominate and discipline workers, and also to discipline the elite professionals and managers who wield these tools while enhancing their power and prestige. And while the term cancel culture is new, there's nothing new about these techniques. They're the same ones that hierarchical institutions have used for thousands of years, whether it's the medieval Catholic Church, modern-day cults, or 20th century ruling communist parties. Further, I'll also be arguing that these are tools that are being increasingly used in recent years to fight off any drives for economic or political equality, and that these tools are ultimately perpetuating the things that they claim to fight, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, etc. So this is a lot to get into, but let's see what happens. Let the cartoon... Begin. So, if we want to talk intelligently about something, first we need to define what it is we're talking about. So we need to figure out how to define cancel culture and political correctness. And as you can already see from how I've been talking, I've been implicitly defining these terms in entirely negative ways. And I'm doing this for two reasons. First, those terms already have very negative connotations for most people. Like nobody actually says that they practice cancel culture or political correctness. And the other reason that I'm using them in entirely negative ways is that these terms deliberately conflate two different ideas that are mere universe versions of each other and which do not belong together in the same term. So I want to use the terms cancel culture and political correctness to describe the negative evil mere universe ideas. And I want to use different terms for the positive versions so that we can keep them separated in our minds and undo the ideological garbage that is being done by conflating them together. Historically, a trick of people in power who want to maintain and enhance their power is to take positive ideas that are very popular, but that are a threat to power, and then lump them together with ideas that everybody hates. That way, the popular ideas get delegitimized and destroyed by being associated with the negative idea. And I call this poison pilling. Very fancy. And conversely, they also take a word that has positive connotations, and then they slip in a poison idea in order to trick you into swallowing that poison idea in a nice candy coating, in order to give it legitimacy, which I call sugar-pilling. A historical example of both poison-pilling and sugar-pilling can be found in the use and abuse of the word socialism by capitalist regimes and communist regimes in the 20th century. Socialism means different things at different times to different people in different places. But at one point, the word socialism was very much associated with the idea of worker control of workplaces, of the economy, and of political life. Karl Marx called it the free association of the producers. And in general, the idea of workers controlling their workplaces was, and still is, pretty popular. But after the Bolshevik Revolution ended up turning into a dictatorship, you had two things happening at once. 
In the capitalist countries, they poison-pilled the word socialism by associating it with the idea of dictatorship and of total government control of the workplace and of the economy and politics, which are things that most people hate, in order to kill off the idea of workers directly controlling their workplaces and the economy, which is an idea that most people like, but that the business owners and politicians who run Western economies hate. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union and in Europe, where the word socialism had built up enormous prestige, and where there was a ruling communist party in the USSR, and there were many socialist politicians in parliaments across Europe, socialist intellectuals began to use the word socialism to mean a transitionary stage between capitalism and actual worker control, which they now called communism. And in this transitional stage, quote, all citizens are transformed into hired employees of the state, unquote, which is how Lenin describes it in his book State and Revolution, just before his party takes power and which is the first time we find this new definition of the word socialist. And we'll talk about what was going on there in the future. Now, the entire population becoming employees of the state is an idea that most people do not like. But you can get people to swallow that if you put it in a sugar pill and call it socialism, and say that it's a just transition towards worker control, in an area where the word socialism is popular. Similarly, in the West, we sugar pill the institution of labor contracts, where one person gets to be a dictator over the other all day long, which most people don't like, by coding it in terms like freedom of contract, or the notion that contracts are inherently voluntary, which you will learn in every law school and economics class, even though in reality, most people hate their jobs and are just forced to do them so that they don't die. So back to political correctness. There are two ideas lumped up in that term which really do not belong together. On one hand, you have the idea of using respectful language in the spirit of empathy and solidarity, because you want to treat your fellow human beings with dignity and with respect. And on the other hand, you have the phenomenon of obnoxious language policing and the spirit of controlling and dominating people, and the practice of censoring yourself because you're terrified that a language police type person will humiliate you in public, or get you in trouble, or fired, or banned off all of the Reddit subs that I get banned from. Even though you don't necessarily understand which things you're supposed to say or not say, or why. In other words, you have one phenomenon that's about empathy and solidarity and equality, and is therefore a left-wing phenomenon. And then you have another phenomenon that's about domination and control, and is therefore a right-wing phenomenon. Even though in the recent iteration of political correctness, at least, egalitarian ideals are the excuse being used to exert that domination and control. And keep in mind that political correctness is historically most often a straight-up right-wing affair, with no left-wing pretense. Like in the 1950s, for example, the things you'd get in trouble for was criticizing capitalism and sympathizing with socialism. Or in the early 2000s, people like Donahue or the Dixie Chicks were getting literally canceled and banned for criticizing the Iraq war. And today you get professors fired or denied tenure because of their positions on Israel-Palestine politics. Or you have Colin Kaepernick blacklisted for criticizing the police. Or you have any number of historical regimes where people will go to jail or be executed for criticizing the king. So, we want different terms for these concepts respectful language versus imposing political conformity by fear. Since the term political correctness already has bad connotations for most people, let's keep that term to describe the idea of imposing political conformity by fear, and let's use the term respectful language for using respectful language. Not only does this separate opposing ideas, but it's a political winner for respectful language. Like imagine someone going on an angry tirade against respectful language you'd have to be a complete asshole, and it would be very obvious that you're a complete asshole. When it comes to the definition of cancel culture, just like with political correctness, we want to separate the toxic dominance ideas from the positive egalitarian ideas. So, on the one hand, you have the idea of public backlash and public critiques when somebody in a position of power or influence says or does something that a lot of people don't like. 
Maybe people are booing them at a concert or boycotting their show or their speech or writing critical or snarky comments on tweeters. And on the other hand, there's a practice of purposefully disinterpreting and misinterpreting what someone did or said, purposefully exaggerating the damage or harm that's caused by the thing that they did or said, or implying conscious intent to someone that did something by accident or by ignorance in order to humiliate them or get them fired or to destroy them for whatever the reason is. Like taking out your rivals in your social circle, or at work, or in just increasing your own status, or just for the sad thrill of exercising power over others. And on the one hand, there's publicly berating a wealthy and powerful, financially secure public figure who has a huge platform when they say something or do something awful, or because they make a living saying and doing awful things. And on the other hand, there's publicly humiliating a regular person who may or may not have done or said something bad, and whose actions have almost no impact on the world, getting them fired, destroying their ability to get another job, like what happened to that janitor at Smith College. Or, on the one hand, there's exposing and shunning someone who actively and knowingly does horrible things, like Bill Cosby or Richard Spencer, or someone who's a local serial date rapist in your community. And you're doing this because you want to prevent these people from doing more harm. And then on the other hand, there's digging up tweets or photos or video of someone who did or said something stupid or shitty 10 years ago, and wildly exaggerating the harm that this caused, and ignoring the fact that you're now the one publicizing these long-forgotten things to the world, thereby spreading the supposed harm like wildfire. And what you're actually doing is trying to destroy that person because you're taking out a political rival, or a business competitor, or someone at your job that you don't like, or whose position you want, like what happened to the editor at Teen Vogue when someone dug up racist tweets that she made when she was 16 years old in high school because they didn't want to work with her. And workers in our society don't get to choose who they work with, so this is one of the tools that people will sometimes use to uh, prevent someone from being their new boss or co-worker. So, we want to reserve one term, cancel culture, for all the behavior that's ultimately about enforcing power relations, whether it's disproportionate punishment, defamation, terrorizing people without power for what they think, inventing or wildly exaggerating harm as an excuse to exact punishment, and whether you're using egalitarian pretenses or just straight up saying don't criticize the queen or don't burn the flag. And then we want a different term for public criticism, booing, defending ourselves from dangerous people. So with all this stuff in mind, I think we can give another shot at defining cancel culture as being the culture of exacting extreme punishments like firing, doxing, public humiliation, and social ostracism for violations of social and political norms that may or may not have been committed and which have the primary effect of enforcing or establishing relations of power and dominance over the people under threat of cancellation. And this includes enhancing the status and prestige of the person exacting the punishment. And political correctness is the set of rules that you're not supposed to transgress, intentionally or unintentionally, and the self-censorship that people exercise for fear of being punished for those transgressions. Now, where the transgressions are transgressions of right-wing norms, like firing supposed communist sympathizers in the McCarthy era, or executing someone for criticizing the king, it's already clear and inherent that the purpose of this punishment is to maintain the dominance of the powers that be. But when the transgressions are violations of left-wing social norms, which is what we're most often talking about when we talk about cancel culture today, we can see that there's a fundamental hypocrisy there, where the justification or pretense is egalitarian, but the actual aim is dominance. And if you're wondering how we can tell the difference between real egalitarian behavior and dominance behavior in disguise, there are a lot of red flags and clues. 
Like, is the action being taken going to improve the world in any way? When you see things like immediate calls for firing and extreme punishment and excommunication for small and moderate offenses, with a total absence of any constructive intervention aimed at teaching anyone anything, whether it's teaching the person who supposedly said or did something bad, why what they said or did is bad, or teaching the general public who's watching this, who might be inclined to agree with the person who's being targeted. And there's just no attempt at anything that might improve the supposed harm that the target of the punishment caused, now or in the future. There's just punishment. That's a big red flag, that the goal is just terror and control, and not gender equality or racial equality, and certainly not solidarity and empathy. When you out a local date rapist, or call for a professor who sexually harasses students to be fired, then you can claim that you're preventing more people from being raped and harassed. But if you're calling for the firing of someone who made racist tweets when they were 15 years old, or an actress who said something stupid that 50% of Americans believe, or calling for a janitor to be fired whose actions were misinterpreted as racism by a student, who are you helping? And then there's the whole idea of hypocrisy. When someone who's supposedly against the prison incarceration system and for restorative justice practices when it comes to crimes, but then suddenly that same person believes in total Spanish Inquisition Salem witch hunt practices when it comes to someone who said the wrong word or who has an ignorant, stupid opinion about something, that is a huge red flag. When a professor who says the N-word out loud while reading from a James Baldwin text or a Malcolm X essay because they want to teach the ideas of James Baldwin and Malcolm X as they were intended to be read, and those authors use that specific word and not another word for a reason, and then that person gets fired more quickly than a professor who sexually harasses their students because claims of sexual harassment actually get an investigation first, that is a big red flag that preventing harm is not the operating principle at work, that there's something else going on. When you're trying to exact the same punishment and treatment on someone who made racist tweets in high school 10 or 15 years ago, as you do to a person who's a serial date rapist, that is a huge red flag that what you're doing isn't about preventing harm. It's about redefining everything as harm so that you can justify having the power to exact punishment and destruction on anyone that you don't like at any moment. When extreme punishments like firing are enacted for transgressions of rules that most people don't even understand, without any in-depth explanation or any restorative justice type of learning process, what you are doing is teaching the general public that if you have the wrong opinions, you will be destroyed. And the result is the opposite of solidarity and the opposite of fighting racism or sexism or transphobia and everything else. You're just associating any talk of gender and racial equality and being respectful to our fellow human beings with fear and terror. And that's sure to generate more prejudice and bigotry. And of course, it will be exploited to the hilt by politicians who are against things like racial and gender equality to foster as much resentment as possible. As human beings, we know that there are rules in our society and in the various groups and social circles that we're a part of. Work, school, religious places, friends. And we expect to know what the rules are and the reasons for them. And then we can choose to obey them or not based on whether or not we agree with them and whether or not we want to deal with the consequences of not obeying, even if we don't agree with them. And we need to be able to voice opinions that may sometimes be wrong or bad if we're ever going to have the discussions necessary for us to be exposed to the counter-arguments that might make us realize why those things are wrong and bad. And we all say and do stupid things at some point or another on a regular basis without realizing it. We obviously want to live in a world where we can expect that when we do say something stupid, that someone will explain to us why that was stupid, and where we can have the chance to argue it out or think it out. And if we decide to conform to some rule, then we should at least understand why that rule exists, whether we agree with it or not. But 
If you only care about these issues as a means to power and control, and not about improving society in any real way, not about gender equality, racial equality, anything else, then you don't want any understanding or convincing. You just want obedience. Even better if people don't understand the rules, because they're not your equals. They don't have a right to think or disagree. They're just your objects of control. That's why the Catholic Church prevented translation of the liturgy and the Bible into local languages. You're just supposed to obey, not understand or debate. And another nifty advantage of not understanding the rules in a hierarchical institution is that the people who are subject to these rules are going to be so afraid that they might do something that they don't understand, that they're going to be censoring themselves and policing everything they do 24-7 in case it might somehow violate one of these rules. And they'll be keeping their heads down in a constant state of stress. You want the smallest transgression to be equivalent to the biggest crime so that you can decide to punish to whatever degree you want to for whatever your reasons are. You want everyone to be labeled immediately as an active racist or sexist or transphobe rather than as a person who thinks or says stupid things out of ignorance or who's just wrong on this or that issue. Just like in the right-wing versions, you want someone to fear immediately being labeled as a traitor to the nation or a communist or a sinner or a witch, or a saboteur. You want everyone to be so busy being afraid of being the next target, and so narcissistically obsessed with whether they appear as a good or bad person, or whether they're afraid of being accused of sympathizing with a bad person, so that their critical judgment is just shut off, and that they don't notice how disproportionate and counterproductive all these punishments and consequences are. And all this means that people will be afraid of each other, either afraid of getting cancelled or targeted, or they'll just be so afraid that every time they meet a person from a different culture that they're going to say something that will inadvertently get them in trouble. And the more afraid that people are, the more divided they are, which means they don't unite together against power. And that's something that every power wants. That's why among all the different anti-racist trainings available out there, white fragility is the one that's the most popular with corporate managers, because it makes workers uncomfortable and afraid of each other, and it puts them in a state of constant self-policing. That's a comfortable state for management to have your employees in, or leaders of any hierarchical institution. If the employees do one of those anti-racist trainings that builds solidarity and empathy, the employees might start uniting together against the employer and make demands. They might even start a union, and no employer wants that. When we do an episode on animal politics, we'll see that alpha chimpanzees will sometimes just randomly lash out and attack another chimpanzee for no reason. And what this does is it keeps everyone in a state of constant anxiety when they're around, and it helps the alpha maintain his power and prevents other chimps from forming alliances against him. And you have similar mechanisms in dictatorships, where everyone is afraid of being denounced as a traitor to the regime. And if the effect of your punishments are scaring people and sending them off to join some right-wing or alt-right circle, because people just naturally tend to get the hell away from mobs who are mindlessly trying to destroy their lives, and they tend to gravitate towards those people who are criticizing the mobs who are trying to destroy their lives, well, if that happens, then so much the better. You can claim that it proves that that person that you were targeting was evil the whole time and that you were right to excommunicate and punish them. Once a witch, always a witch. These are the mentalities and tools of maintaining dominance hierarchy. And that's why you see the exact same techniques used in dictatorships, religious cults, theocracies, and corporate management in every hierarchical institution throughout history. Which brings us to the idea of class selection. And why it is that good ideas like gender equality and racial solidarity get morphed into bad ideas, and why the bad version is so popular in a particular section of the upper middle class, where they originate from, which we'll talk about in the next segment of this cancel culture series. In the meantime, let me know what you think of these definitions, or my reasoning here. You can write me at worldwidescroats at gmail.com, or on the YouTube comments, and I'll usually write you back. 
Like, subscribe, give me money on Patreon because I need it. And coming up soon, I'll be doing a line-by-line critique of David Graeber and David Wengro's recent articles on hierarchy and equality, which are prelude to their upcoming book, The Dawn of Everything. And just before that, I have an interview with Arnold Schroeder from Fight Like an Animal, which was a lot of fun, and I'll be putting that up next. And Fight Like an Animal is a podcast that you'll want to check out. It has a lot of themes in common with this show. And, uh... Then I have an episode which I'm going to call Why You Can't Eliminate Patriarchy by Just Eliminating Patriarchy, which on the one hand is a thought experiment about how even if you gave everyone in the world pink pills and eliminated sexism and patriarchy from everyone's hearts, you'd still end up with sexism and patriarchy after a generation or two unless you change the material conditions that generate sexism and patriarchy. And then in the same episode, I have a real historical example which illustrates my thought experiment nicely and kind of confirms it, which I'm really excited about because it's uh, such an important topic. And in either the next segment or the one after that, when it comes to this cancel culture series, I'll be looking a bit at the history of right-wing ideologies of hierarchy and dominance disguised in the language of left-wing egalitarianism and freedom. And until then, see ya! (laughs) 